these companies did incredibly well. But my stupid decision, and this is a classic thing that I'm sure you've seen a million times, is I panicked. I reacted to short-term headlines. When the European crisis started erupting, I was like, oh my God, this looks very bad. I'm going to get the hell out of Dodge. So I sold out. Hello, fellow risk takers, and welcome to my worst investment ever. Stories of loss to keep you winning. In our community, we know that to win in investing, you must take risk, but to win big, you've got to reduce it. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm on a mission to help 1 million people reduce risk in their lives. And I want to thank you for joining that mission today. Fellow risk takers, this is your worst podcast host, Andrew Stotts from A. Stotts Academy. And I'm here with featured guests, Robin Wigglesworth. Robin, are you ready to join the mission? I am very much. <laughs> I suspect you'll have a story to tell and at least you should be able to tell it very well from your background. Let me introduce you to the audience. Robin is the editor of Alphaville, the Financial Times financial blog from Oslo, Norway. He leads a team of writers that dig into anything deeply nerdy or plain delightful that they spot in the markets, business, or the global economy. He's also the author of Trillions, a book on the past, present, and future of passive investing and how it is reshaping financial markets. Robin, take a minute and tell us about the unique value you are bringing to this wonderful world. Well, that's a good question. I don't think it's unique at all because I think it'd be very hubristic to think so, but I love to learn. I mean, I was like, my dream job was just being a student and I love jobs where you basically get paid to learn. And that's what you do when you're a journalist. So, you know, I've met people, many people smarter than me. I wanted to be a physicist initially, actually, but I realized I was only smart enough to be a mediocre physicist. But I love to learn. So, you know, if you work hard and love to learn, then generally speaking, journalism is a fun profession for you. And I try to basically mix a little bit of my nerdy history interests and Everything I've learned about the global economy and finance and investing in markets and put it all together, ideally and sort of with the big picture in mind as well. So you can dive deep and go really niche, but also keep an eye on the big picture because sometimes that, you know, like the proverbial forest for the trees, it can get lost. Mm -hmm. You know, one thing about your business that is a little bit like when I was an analyst on the sell side, it's a machine. There's deadlines. You got to hit them. And I tell you, I really enjoyed that pressure for 20 years. And then, and then I didn't. And then I left. I was kind of like Forrest Gump. I just stopped running and it just stopped. But how do you like, for people that don't know your business and, and that, you know, the deadline focus and all that, tell us a little bit about how you respond to that and what it's like for you. Well, it's always been fine for me. And maybe I will get to a point where I also like Forrest Gump and you stop running. But I like the pressure a little bit because it forces you to find out a little bit how you do under it. So there are times when in, in journalism, especially financial journalism, when it's fairly slow. And essentially the job sometimes, or at least when I was younger, luckily I don't have to do this anymore. You write about stocks go up, stocks go down, essentially. Fed says this, Fed says that. But there are sort of these moments in time where everything breaks and that can be relentless. So for me, most recently, it was during COVID, of course, my wife was a nurse. 
So she was out at work and, you know, having her own troubles at work. Mm. I had the kids at home and I suddenly had to basically do two jobs, two, three jobs at the FT while still trying to keep the kids vaguely fed and clothed. But it was just so much fun. It was just like I rolled out of bed at 6 a.m. every morning, checked my phone, what is breaking there, checked all my messages from panicky contacts by the financial system almost collapsing. People don't realize how close we actually came to full-blown financial crisis on top of the economic and health crisis we were facing. And then, you know, you work through the day, you work until some midnight, and then you can go to bed and get maybe six hours sleep if you're lucky. And it was just fun. And you do have to produce you have to kind of write the stuff you find out. And a lot of the pressure I feel is less about deadlines, but about what you don't cover, that you have a finite number of minutes in any given day. And the hardest choice, I think, in my job, but also, frankly, in many jobs, is what do you not do? Because that is an active choice as well. And sometimes, you know, I regret stories I didn't write more than any stories I have written. Because sometimes I've decided, look, that is really interesting, but that is going to be a two-day job or a two-week job, and I just need to prioritize something else. And quite often, I think I get those sort of allocation decisions right. Mm-hmm. But sometimes, you know, I know of at least one story in the last few years that would have been just a killer story if I just stuck at it, and it ended up being a killer story for somebody else. And you know, those are the things I feel more than the actual the weight of the deadlines themselves. Yeah, that's it's interesting because if you don't have a business that's got that daily deadline, you also have the the risk that you drag yourself into so many things and you don't cut off. I know when you're writing under a deadline, you always are like, nope, can't do that. Well, I'd like to do that, but can't. Maybe I'll look at that next, but I've got to stay focused on, you know, what am I going to bring out that's, you know, that's meeting the topic. And just for people who haven't that haven't visited or read what you do, let me just highlight it's ft the financial times.com slash alphaville. And the description here here is the FT Markets and Finance blog. We love financial plumbing, debt crises, balance sheets, margin calls, economic puns, and snark. <laughs> and then I'm looking at some of the articles like Masa Sun IPO. FTAVs, further reading, you've got cryptocurrencies, pension fund protection, Sri Lanka, you know, another friendly Sri Lankan intervention, you've got NFTs, you got US banking reforms going backwards. I mean, it's like quite a collection of, of stuff. Maybe you can just, just introduce that for anybody that doesn't know that, you know, where they can find out more and, and enjoy it. Well, so FT.com is our website for the Financial Times. And frankly, one of the good things about at least where I work is that the FT has had a very successful digital transition. We are primarily a vibrant digital business now. Actually, we might make money. So mm-hmm. I don't have to go around worrying about my job like, you know, sadly, quite a lot of other people in my profession do. And it's obviously a very high quality, very serious paper. And it's where I spent most of my, my life now. And I was a reader before I was a journalist. So I still have to pinch myself occasionally with, you know, from the chip pride of working there. But Alphaville was always designed to be a little bit different in that like it was it was set up to be a blog in spirit and form and substance. So it's quicker, sharper, snarkier, more conversational. Mm. And also for me, the attraction has always been why I used to occasionally contribute the old post for it even before I became the editor is because sometimes the strictures of journalism, you know, good journalism has a structure. Like this is how you structure a news story. This is how you structure a feature story. This is how you do a profile. And those rules are good and they're there for a reason. They're guardrails. Mm. But sometimes those guardrails can constrict you. 
Like essentially you have to fit the story into the structure rather than fit it to the substance of the story. So with Alphaville, we can write, first of all, whatever we want, as long as it is broadly within finance, economics, business, markets, investing, and so on, if it's money related. Mm. But we can also write it in any way we want to write it. So that means we can overweight like the stuff that we just think is fun and interesting. We can say this is interesting and fun. So I always say we are not a blog of opinion posts. We don't want to write our opinions like what Robin Wigglesworth thinks about X or Y, mm. but we are allowed to have opinions. We can say, this is what I know. This is what I think. And this is what I have no clue about, but I'd love our brilliant smart readers to help out. Because frankly, the readers of the FT and Alphaville are frankly far smarter than I am. So it makes sense to kind of involve them a little bit. And yes, quite often they say, you know, you've got this horrifically wrong and I can do an update. And I think that's actually good, accountable journalism. So I love that a blog like Alphaville gives us, frankly, although it for some people it seems lower quality because we use stupid memes and puns and we can make jokes and even occasionally swear, I actually think the freedom and flexibility of it gives us the ability to do higher quality journalism in substance. Mm -hmm. It's easier to do nuance and say clearly what we know, what we don't know, what we'd like to find out, what we're planning to investigate and kind of showing our work. And also just because we don't need to be tied to whatever's going on on any given day. Like, for example, mm -hmm. when the Federal Reserve makes a, a decision. Obviously, it's a huge thing for markets, but that is very well covered by my main FT colleagues, CNBC, Bloomberg, Dow Jones, the whole works, right? So we can focus on the stuff that other people ignore. And that's why, you know, or find an angle into something that everybody else is right that we think is just more interesting. So bank regulation, I mean, you know this far better than I do. Bank regulation is really boring for a lot of people, but it's massively important. Yep. hugely important mm. and it kind of gets underplayed sometimes by mainstream financial news organizations but it really really matters in ways that you don't always appreciate until it bites you in the ass well i mean just one little thing i was just looking at the u.s banking sector and i was looking at the cash as a percent of total assets and i was looking at the securities as a percent of total assets and of course banks used to have a small amount of cash in the u.s and not was you know who wants unproductive money and they you know, didn't have that much securities, particularly government securities. And then after 2008, cash exploded. And then we had a peak time where you had cash and government debt at like almost 60% of the total size of the balance sheet. And you just realize now that came down, but still regulation keeps it at some minimum that's still pretty high. And then the behavior of the banks and the fact that there's not a lot of buyers for US treasuries. So banks end up holding treasuries on their books. And then you realize like these, they're not the banks they used to be. They're in a very, very different situation. No, exactly. I mean, it, it's been fascinating to see. I mean, it's amazing to me that 15 years after the birth of quantitative easing, or at least the birth of quantitative easing in the US and Japan, they've always been dabbling with this for longer. We're still kind of arguing what impact it had why it had an impact or why it didn't have an impact. We just don't know is the honest answer. Mm. Although there are tons of academic and economic papers written about this. But I think one of the impacts you can clearly see, it flooded the banking system with money. And actually it means that they have more cash on hand securities. They had to place it somewhere and government securities became an obvious place to do it. They obviously after 09, they did not go on a massive lending spree. So it's going to be interesting to see. I think this is also one of the reasons why we had more of an inflationary kind of ketchup bottle effect 
after COVID than we did after 2008, not just the scale of the monetary intervention and the fiscal intervention, because obviously we had a far stronger fiscal impulse this time. Mm. But I think the main thing is that, you know, money wasn't quite as bottled up in the banking sector this time as it was in 08, because after 08, banks were in repair mode for a decade. But when COVID hit, actually, banks were in pretty good shape overall. That meant that once they had all this trapped money, once the kind of things returned a little bit to normal, you know, you've had this catch-up effect. But uh, bank regulations, I mean, I once spent a very happy day being kind of going through an entire lecture of like some Basel III lecturer. And I, it's like, this is not for everybody, but I like learning stuff, even yeah. if it is nerdy and weird. Yeah, I mean, I, I covered banks for the first 10 years of my career. And one of the things I do now is I don't invest in banks. And people ask why. And I say, because first of all, they're simply an arm of the government now. They what not only instruments of government financial or fiscal or monetary policy, but also the hidden regulations behind the scenes of their compliance related to, you know, suspicious behavior and stuff that these banks are just doing the bidding of the government. They don't have a choice. The second thing is that they it's very it's a commodity type business it's very hard to innovate in that business and say bank a is going to go up by 10 times in share price whereas all the others only went up by one or two times you know over the next 5 years it's just very difficult to do because it is so commoditized so and then when you correlate the movement of the bank index relative to the overall index you find that it's pretty closely correlated and therefore yeah. it doesn't even add like a diversification element and you're almost guaranteed you're not going to get a huge that you're going to get a huge upside in any one bank. So I always view it as kind of a market exposure. And in countries like Thailand, yeah. it could give you exposure to a broad economy that you may not be able to get if you invest in the overall market. But still, I think twice before I go into banks these days. No, I, I get it. I mean, I, for me, I, I think the biggest factor would be not that I'm really allowed to make many investments as a journalist and certainly not in banks, but mm. it's the complexity of the business. That I mean, all businesses are complex these days. I and mean, the reality is that most of us use a TV without being able to explain how a TV works. <laughs> and that's fine. But for me, the real the signal event for me was when JP Morgan had that CDS debacle, I think in 2012, mm. when even Jamie Dimon came out and said, look, this is a storm in a teacup, was the, the words he used, and actually ended up costing the $5 billion. And look, Jamie Dimon is, you know, the generational talent of banking. I mean, he is the, the modern day John Pierpont Morgan. And even he did not have a handle on the risks of his own bank. And this is one of the best run banks in the world with one of the best bank CEOs in the world. And even he doesn't understand what's lurking beneath the balance sheet always. And that just makes me think that modern day banking, there's too much complexity there for me to feel entirely comfortable with it because I see smart people screw this up all the time. I just look at Credit Suisse. Mm -hmm. There are brilliant people that work there, but it was basically a complete debacle or a series of debacles for close to a decade until it finally kind of keeled over. So yeah, banks, I mean, I, I find them fascinating and they're hugely important. They're still sort of one of the dominant engines of capitalism. But yeah, as an investor, I'd also be a little bit wary of them, I think. Let's talk a little bit about your book, Trillions. Tell us, you know, why did you write this book? And just tell us a little bit about what the reader will get when they read it. So I was the US markets editor for the Financial Times in New York. So I kind of led the, the financial coverage out there. 
And, you know, we don't have the staffing of a Bloomberg or a Wall Street Journal. And certainly the Wall Street Journal is like dominant there in the same way that we are in the UK and in Europe. So you have to pick your battles. You have to be a little bit more laser focused and find out what is huge important but is being undercovered or uncovered at all. So I had to cover the Fed and the Treasury market. These are kind of essential things you have to do. But for me, the area that was clearly having a huge and growing impact on market was the role of systematic investing, rules-based investing, quantitative investing, whatever you want to call it. Mm-hmm. You know, big pot shops like Renaissance and Two Sigma or trading firms like Virtu and Jump Street and uh, Jump and Jane Street. And, you know, part of that was index funds. Index funds like are often not thought of as like many Renaissance or DE Shores, but they are inherently just an investment algorithm that says buy all the stocks in the S&P 500 according to the market weighting. And you can't interview or you can interview the portfolio manager for the S&P 500 index fund of Vanguard, but it's not exciting. He can't tell you what he thinks the market's going to do, what he's going to buy and sell. So journalists tend to gravitate towards big imperial portfolio managers, hedge fund titans like Ken Griffin and Ray Dalio who can say, I think the market's going up or down, or I think banks look terrible, or I think China looks interesting. So, you know, they are our celebrities. And sometimes we end up being celebrity journalists as well. We just have, you know, we don't write about Kardashian. We write about Ken Griffin. But index fund, I just thought was really fascinating. So I started covering index funds and passive investing, how it was changing markets, both from a microstructure and from a macro level. And some things I think have been massively overdone. I don't think index funds are actually having a huge distortive effect. But I think there are other areas that we should definitely be worried about. And then I started digging into the origin story. And it turned out that although index funds don't have these interesting portfolio managers in the present per se, it has this incredible, rich backstory of of fascinating people that helped build it. And really, if you think of the index fund as just kind of like a financial technology, and that's really what it was. It was the first marriage of computers and Wall Street. Like the Mm. first quants, the first people that started using data and computers on Wall Street, the first product they came up with was the index fund. And they were just really interesting. And obviously, they also, everybody hated them. They were figuratively, and in one case, I heard literally spat upon by their Wall Street friends and colleagues and rivals. So it's just this great narrative arc of this underdog invention that everybody hates and laughs at. And then it kind of finally kind of, triumphs and kind of takes over the world and now we're really talking about just how big this suck is going to be rather than whether it's going to survive which was frankly the debate for the first 10 20 almost 30 years Mm. so that's the story i wanted to try and tell because it was you know both important and just fun and colorful and interesting and i think that's a, a good combo for a book or i hope at least Yeah. When I started in the stock market in 1993, you know, if you wanted to have a really diversified portfolio, you pretty much had to build it. You know, I mean, you could, you know, invest in some mutual funds for sure. But I remember when index funds came along, it just really was an innovation that allowed people to do something that would have been much more expensive or much more difficult to do. I'm just curious, like, there's a lot of things going on in the index world. Like one of the things that I see is some people are thinking that the index funds are taking over the world because they now find that the index funds are the top shareholders in almost every stock in the world. And I have to talk to some of my friends and tell them, no, 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 
That's just a passive holding. It's not like they're taking over the world. There's, you know, one thing there. Then you got this other part. You know, I was a an analyst, so I'm an active type of investor. And, you know, if index funds take over the world, then maybe things are going to get mispriced. And, you know, then there's a space for analysts again. And then, of course, there's the whole ESG agenda that could be getting implemented in positive or negative or nefarious or other ways through index funds. But I'm just curious, like, what is the most, you know, contentious part of index funds that you saw as you dug deep into it? Yeah, I mean, this was basically the last third of the book, because I think even fans of indexing like me should not be blind or blind ourselves or ignore potential negative externalities or side effects from new inventions. We've seen everything that has a positive impact on the world also inevitably does have a negative one. I think most of the concerns are either overblown or completely wrongheaded. So for example, I don't think they make markets less efficient, which is the one that you hear a lot. And I don't think there is a magic tipping point that will bring back active because I think on average every year it is you know, if we're being completely honest, the very unlucky or the mediocre portfolio managers and investors that lose their jobs. And the new people that come into the market are better and better trained. So, I mean, when you started, you know, your job, you know, having a CFA would have been considered like a huge edge, right? These yeah. days, I mean, you throw a rock on Wall Street, you'll hit a CFA. Yeah. Same with PhDs. I remember talking to Burton Malkiel and Charlie Ellis, who are these are pioneers in this world. Yeah. And, you know, they got PhDs in economics, in the 60s, and that was just considered just, I mean, alien-like. And even they said it was really hard then. And these days, again, you know, if you talk to any even mediocre portfolio management shop, you know, they will have PhDs on staff. They'll have data scientists. They'll have computer scientists. So it's just getting harder and harder. And I think index funds actually, in a weird way, are helping make the markets more efficient by raising the bar for everybody. Like suddenly you have this cheap perfectly okay rival so it raises the bar for everybody and actually that's i think one of the reasons why we actually see active performance get worse on average i mean it goes up and down mm -hmm. depending a little bit on how this how much dispersion of the, the kind of the the qualities of the market in any given year but broadly speaking active performance is actually being trending or sloppily falling down rather mm -hmm. than rising as passive eats more and more but i do think there are corners that smart traders and investors can definitely identify but it happens less in the large cap us equity space it'll be you know the impact on of a taiwanese etf on on that market or micro cap gold stocks and things like that i think you do your research you can find areas i talk about some of them in my book but I do think this kind of takeover of the world is the big issue. And not because, because I see there's so many conspiracy theories around this. I see this going around the internet all the time. People are like, oh my God, BlackRock controls the world and Larry Fink. And it's so easy to construct, frankly, stupid assistant line conspiracy theories around this. But it is true that index funds are taking over more and more the ownership of big companies. Now, is that bad? Actually, I don't think it is bad in the narrow from when I've looked at this and that I don't think like active managers were great sh shareholder owners anyway. I don't think there was a golden era of corporate governance. Just look at the lumbering conglomerates of the 60s, 50s and 60s. So I think it's always tempting to think everything was better before, but I just don't believe it. And I think as these companies like Vanguard, BlackRock have kind of been shamed into not just being passive investors, but passive owners, they are taking more of a 
a stance. Mm. And that is how ESG comes in. And frankly, look, I'm a cynic. I think it's marketing. I think it was good marketing, certainly in Europe. It was good marketing in the US, but obviously there's in the US, everything becomes political. Everything's a front in the culture wars. It drives me crazy, but that's yeah. that's the way it is. So I think, you know, people like Larry Finker Blackrock kind of regret that they kind of waded into this here. It's too much of a headache for them now. What was kind of looked like a marketing win is now just an annoyance. But broadly speaking, we want these owners to be actively engaged up to reason. But mm. I cannot shake off this kind of sense of unease about not just where we are today, but where we're going to be in 20 years time, because the economics of indexing of index funds means that basically, you know, Vanguard, Black Rocks and State Street's index funds are exactly identical. They just match the S&P 500, um, the the S&P 500 index Mm. funds. They have many of them. So you just gravitate to the cheapest one. There's no product difference, really. So it just means that the big become bigger and bigger and bigger because they're able to create these index funds because of the economies of scale cheaper and cheaper. And the natural endpoint here is not just that Vanguard and BlackRock and State Street own collectively sort of 15%, 10, 15, 5% of the market, depending on what market segment you look at, but they could conceivably within our lifetimes own 50% of most listed companies. And again, I don't think they're evil. I don't think they're taking over the world. But that kind of concentration of corporate power, I don't feel entirely comfortable with. Mm. But I saw great, there's a great new book from another academic in this area called John Coates at Yale, no, at Harvard Law. And he had this phrase, I thought maybe, because all the solutions to this are actually kind of make everything worse. And we don't want to ban index funds. They are actually huge societal good. But he said, maybe this is not a problem we can solve, but a conundrum we just need to manage. I think it's a good way of, we just need to be aware of this and manage this. And I think, actually, I used to feel this was under-debated when I started writing my book. Mm. Now, and maybe my book helped a little bit in some areas, but I think now it is very much front and center, whether you talk to regulators, index fund providers, index providers, politicians even i I think it's Mm. it's getting the appropriate attention now Mm. thankfully Mm. so for the listeners out there it's called trillions how a band of wall street renegades invented the index fund and changed finance forever you can get it on amazon there's also the audible or audiobook version of it hardcover kindle and i'll have links to that in the show notes so feel free to check it out and now it's time to share your worst investment ever. And since no one goes into their worst investment thinking it will be, tell us a bit about the circumstances leading up to it and then tell us your story. Well, I guess my worst decision, investment decision was not becoming a mediocre physicist and working on Wall Street. I think, you know, there are lots of mediocre physicists there and some excellent ones that make very good living, certainly better than what any journalist makes. But the worst sort of direct investment decision I made was in after the financial crisis, I was a Middle East correspondent for the Financial Times at the time. And, you know, the crisis hit later there because of the oil price boom run up, up until basically the collapse of Lehman. Mm. So the Gulf was just parting essentially until late 2008. But it was very clear what was happening. But I was very impressed with how quickly central banks reacted in sort of the second last quarter of 2008 after Lehman collapsed I think they realized there's no more half measures go bazooka every central bank every government went bazooka China you know went crazy on their stimulus and 
as a journalist, first of all, I can't make investments in any company I ever cover, even sectors. I mean, we have very strict rules around this. Anything I do make, even if it's a broad index fund, I have to report it centrally, and I'm not allowed to basically cover that then. Mm. But because I was in the Middle East, a lot of this stuff I didn't cover. And I am from Oslo, Norway, originally, and I used to cover Norway for Bloomberg News. And Norway, the krona just got brutalized in 2008 because oil prices crashed. And it's a smaller currency. So everybody was going into the dollar. And the krona crashed. The Oslo Stock Exchange crashed because it's a very oil-oriented exchange. But I was working in the Gulf where the dirham is pegged to the dollar. So the dirham was suddenly worth a lot more. And I didn't have a lot of money, but I had banked... The odd few special payments, we do these little special reports for the FT that we get paid as a freelancer. So I took that money after I was like, actually, no. I mean, I didn't time the low in 09 at all. I'd waited a few months. But I thought, actually, look, even if things take another turn for the worst, Norway is going to be fine. It's it's superpower, it's oil and being boring and vaguely competent, basically everything. So I did take my accumulated money and put it in an ETF that follows the also stock exchange, a consumer durables company called Orkla that makes frozen pizzas and soap and lots of random things, and a fertilizer company called Yara. And that was actually a brilliant decision because the Krona snapback, the also stock exchange snapback, these companies did incredibly well but my stupid decision and this is a classic thing that i'm sure you've seen a million times is i panicked i reacted to short-term headlines when the european crisis started erupting i was like oh my god this looks very bad i'm going to get the hell out of dodge so i sold out and Mm. you know and ironically also i kept yara because I thought fertilized food, you know, we, we need fertilized system grim food. But Yara got embroiled in a, a corruption scandal. It turns out somebody been bribing somebody somewhere. I can't remember exact details. But it goes to show that even in seemingly good, well-run companies, you know, your investment can blow up because of externalities you cannot foresee. And also it taught me about the psychology of how panicky we humans are. And we know this, that, you know, the average investor in a mutual fund or an index fund actually does radically worse than the performance on that fund because they buy when it's gone up a lot and they sell when it's dropped a lot, which is very bad investors, humans. And frankly, even professionals do this badly. Like market timing is the ultimate original sin of every amateur and professional investor. And I fell into that and I still did okay out of that investment. But when I think of like, had I just kept that small pot of money running until like through the European crisis, through the shale oil crisis, through COVID, through everything. And today, you know, I would have had a far larger, a small pot of money would have been a far larger pot of money. Mm. So that was stupid. And, and I regret and, it. And, and I how, would you, from it. how would you describe the lessons that you learned? Don't think you can outsmart the markets as a whole. Mm. I think like, so I was, despite having written a book about passive investing, I always, and thinking it's the bee's knees, as they say in the UK, I try to stress, I'm not a passive jihadist, as I put it. Like, I don't believe that markets are efficient, Mm. but I think they are. And I think efficient is frankly the wrong loaded word that we've ended up using for it. But I think they are... Efficient is a good shorthand for how they function. They are very hard to second guess unless you happen to have crazy edge or very deep domain expertise in specific areas. So if you look at 
like the big hedge funds that can do this, can durably outperform in the long run, they tend to be very specialized or they have people are very specialized. So for example, I, I saw a delightful quote from somebody talking about Citadel, a hedge fund I've covered a fair bit in the past hmm. that said like they are literally the kind of people that will employ two orthopedic surgeons dedicated to one, one will just do left knees and the other one will just do right knees. And that's all they do is a grind. It's not big kind of godlike decision. They just have a process. They've discovered an inefficiency that they have found out. And they just eke it and milk it year after year after year until somebody else discovers it. It goes away and they have to find something else. And I think that is really the secret of good investing is if you do want to trade, you have to find something that like, what do you really know that nobody else has discovered? And at least for me, and I think, frankly, for a vast majority of professional investors, that is actually, you don't have any special source. There isn't any. So uh, I have not touched a single stock ever since then. And <laughs> my investments, and they are very minimal, mostly levered long Norwegian property and UK property these days, is, you know, it's passive, broad, diversified, cheap, and I never look at it and I never think about it. Mm. And you'll probably win in the long run because you won't damage your returns. Like you say, you know, academic research shows that the typical investor, the average investor in America probably destroys 30 to 50% of the value that they could have captured in, let's say, an index fund only simply because of their timing decision. So one of the things that you reminded me of my first boss in Thailand, a guy named John, he was a British guy, originally went from, from England to Papua New Guinea and then did some stuff there. Then he went to Hong Kong and then he came to Thailand and he worked for a broker here where he set up an institutional part of the business. He was very successful at that. But what I always remember, I remember him standing up when it was just like markets crashing and he's like, yep, yep, I'll buy that. Yep, I'll buy that. I'll buy that. And he was just that kind of guy. He went to Vietnam, set up, you know, started Vietnam's first investment bank called Dragon Capital there. but. The reason why I was thinking about this story was because I was trying to get a hold of him in like 2008, 2009 about something. I just couldn't get him for like a month or two. And finally, he calls me back and said, oh, sorry, I'm sorry, I'm, I couldn't get back to you. I was setting up the structures I needed to set up to buy these Icelandic bonds that were trading at an extreme discount. And I've now locked them in with at a I don't know what the rate was maybe it was 15% that the Icelandic economy the Icelandic government had to issue them at plus the Icelandic currency had completely collapsed because it wasn't part of euro and all that and so he said I've got that I've locked in basically a 20 year return of x plus the currency appreciation I was like <laughs> That is incredible. No, I mean, so I think also one thing that is underestimated is how many investing careers have really been made on one bet. So one of the famous one, Warren Buffett and Ben Graham, his mentor, it was Geico. Like mm -hmm. that was actually a bet that Ben Graham made first, I think, and then Warren just kind of took over and they kind of rode it for a long time. But, you know, recently, because I was covering the, the sanctions against Russia and Russian bonds, and, you know, Appaloosa, apparently Tepper's, big bet was like he literally bought a Russian bond that it was in default in 1998 that ended up getting repaid and like just was kept serviced. And basically that was a solid, like that was like a major contributor to his firm's profit for the next sort of 15 years. 
because he bought it, he had, was able to identify this one will probably be fine, or at least the risk reward made it worth it, right? Because sometimes you don't know if it's going to be fine, but you just have to, you know, it's kind of worth it, like like John and the Icelandic bonds and the Krona. But it is incredible how many of those sort of careers and years have been made by a few very big decisions at the right time. Yeah, and there's just a certain temperament of certain people, and they just they see it. John always saw something coming before most people, but he also had the guts and the resources to take advantage of it, which is a, you know, it's first, you got to be able to see the opportunity. Then you've got to have cash and the flexibility to invest in it at the bottom of the market. Everybody's panicked. They go, oh, I'm going to lose my job. Yeah. Or I'm going to lose that. And then you've got to have the guts to actually pull the trigger and do it and let it ride. Yeah. Yeah, and letting it ride. I mean, one of the worst, other worst decisions I didn't make was when I was a student, I remember that I bought the first iPod that ever came out in Norway. So I, my parents were architects. So I'd grown up with Macintoshes at home. Mm. Uh, they always used Macs and I always loved Apple. But I remember when the iPod came out and like Jobs is, had been, Steve Jobs had been around back for a few years then and had kind of reinvigorated the company. But the iPod was just so radically better than anything I see. I was like, holy shit. I don't believe, even then, I didn't believe by what you know, the old kind of Peter Lynch yeah. saying. But I thought that the iPod was so obviously superior that I was like, this is incredible. So I almost took my student loan and just dropped it in Apple stock. And in the end, I did it because like that, I thought that that would be irresponsible and stupid. But if I had done, holy cow. I mean, Apple was trading it. I, I can't remember because it's split, it split since. I mean, it's... I, I looked at it, but I, I think I would have made, I mean, it was an incredible, obscene amount of money. As in, I, that would have been like the the money I didn't make out of uh, getting out of uh, the stock market in 2011-12 was not meaningful. This would have been meaningful money. But as you know, the reality is that I would have done that and I would have gotten up out before today. You don't let it ride, yeah. even though you should always let your winners ride. Oh, that's the saying. But you know, we 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 cut out too early. We sell too early. I mean, it's it's just very hard. And like I said, I, I see. I talk to people that do this for a living all day long. They are some of the smartest, most impressive women and men I've ever you know I've had pleasure of, of speaking yeah. to. But they screw this up all the time yep. themselves. Yep. So yeah, that's why you know index index funds for the win for me. Keep it simple. So mm. what's a resource either of yours or any other resource that you'd recommend for the listeners? Well, obviously, my book is uh, is amazing, but it's not just me. But even like even people like Paul Singer, who hates index funds, he the head of Elliott Management, he's kind of said that you know his book of the year, and mm. Burton Malkiel liked it. But mm. I don't know. I mean, I'll tell you a resource that I wish I had here in mm. my office in Oslo is a Bloomberg Terminal. They are egregiously expensive, comically, tragicomically expensive. But I, I worked briefly at Bloomberg many years ago, and I still think it is the prime kit but if you can't afford a bloomberg then at least you can have more fun on alphaville and we are unusually for the ft as well we are free you just need to register to read alphaville we are the free fun outward facing part of the financial times empire mm. so the ft super expensive alphaville more fun geekier nerdier and free as long as you register so uh, yeah okay great last question what's your number one goal for the next 12 months Write another book. So I'm writing a book on the history of the bond market now. So I just got a contract with Penguin, who published Trillions. And I'm very excited about that because like bonds are my first love. 
Mm. have always covered mostly fixed income markets. I think they get unfairly put in the shadow by the flashier stock market. But I think the bond market is fascinating. And frankly, it is now bigger than the bank market. So for basically yes. banks and bonds, modern banking bonds, both emerged from Renaissance Italy a millennia ago or in the mm. Renaissance Italy. But now for the first time in history, bonds are actually bigger than bank loans. So they've kind of replaced and usurped banks as the dominant engine of credit in the global economy. And I think that is just huge consequences. So mm. that's what I'm really looking forward to getting stuck into. Exciting, exciting. I think I'm noticing a pattern. Yes. Finding something that seems like, you know, nobody's paying a big amount of attention. It's not so fancy and flashy, but I can find something there behind the scenes. Yeah. And it's fun because like yeah. like the equity, like the index fund world, like the bond market has just riveting human stories. Like the, yeah. the first, the guy that kind of invented the first bond in Italy, in Venice, the Doge of Venice, got murdered by his own citizens for it. Yeah, people like Mike Milken and, and Lou Ranieri, who invented like junk bonds and securitization. Mm. I, I think they're just fascinating stories. And as much as people think the bond market sometimes seems sort of um, complex or unwelcoming or even boring, it really isn't. It's hugely cool and fun. And my favorite people in the world work in the bond market. So I'm really, really looking forward to getting stuck into this. That's exciting. Well, listeners, there you have it. Another story of loss to keep you winning. Remember, I'm on a mission to help 1 million people reduce risk in their lives. As we conclude, Robin, I want to thank you again for joining our mission. And on behalf of Ace Dots Academy, I hereby award you alumni status for turning your worst investment ever into your best teaching moment. Do you have any parting words for the audience? No, just, you know, buy my book, but buy index funds, most of all, <laughs> and stay boring. You know, I think keep it simple is, is the best thing. But thanks so much for having me on, Andrew. It's been a real pleasure. Yep. It's been great. And that's a wrap on another great story to help us create, grow, and protect our well fellow risk takers. Let's celebrate that today we added one more person to our mission to help 1 million people reduce risk in their lives. This is your worst podcast host, Andrew Stott, saying, I'll see you on the upside.